Welcome to the podcast of Real Life Ministries Arizona. Let's get ready for the message from this week's Sunday gathering. The um, biblical principle or the notion that we're going to talk about this morning um, radically changed uh, my life and perspective about nine years ago. So I would love for you to dial your brain in. You're not going to need your Bible. Uh, I am going to quote the Bible, so don't panic. Uh, but you, you are not going to need to look at it. Um, and we're going to talk about this word kingdom. And, and I just want to start here. Uh, Jesus uses the word kingdom two and a half times more than he uses any other word. Now, I always ask you, what do you think Jesus liked to talk about the most, or uh, what word did he use the most, or what concept did he talk about the most? You might think he talked about forgiveness, or he talked about sin. Some people say he talked about money. That's not true. Two and a half times more than any other concept, Jesus talked about kingdom. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. He talks about the kingdom of God. He talks about the people of the kingdom. He is fascinated, uh, obsessed maybe even, with this concept of kingdom. So in order to understand what it is that Jesus is doing and his life and mission and ministry, we have to understand the word kingdom. That, the math makes sense to us, right? I hope so. If he talks about that two and a half times more than he talks about anything else, we should probably wrap our heads around it, right? Okay, good. Got it. Fantastic. So in order to understand this word kingdom, let's just start by defining it because we don't live in a kingdom and there's not really a lot of kingdoms like there would have been in first century Palestine on the planet today. And a kingdom is any place where a king or queen is the total sovereign ruler. That's what the dictionary would say about a kingdom. Any place where the, the king or queen is the total sovereign ruler. That's why in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being in your heart or the kingdom of God being in the world, that, that the kingdom of God can be manifested in all sorts of different ways and places because a king or God as king can be in total control in your business, right? God as king can be in total control in your marriage. God as king can be in total control in your heart. God as king can be in total control, a total, total sovereign ruler in a lot of different places. So the kingdom of God can be manifested in different places. We track him? Cool. So in order to understand what it is that that kingdom looks like, what we have to do is go back to the one time in all of human history where God was in total sovereign and complete control and other folks did not knock him off the throne and place themselves on the throne. And that was in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was void and without form, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he called the light day, and he called the darkness night, and he divided light from darkness. This is the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, if you're familiar with it, the creation account. This is uh, how the Bible starts. talks about God speaking things into existence. And track with me here. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 is not a scientific textbook. 
It's not intended to tell us exactly how many days it took God to do all that stuff. It's a fun little conversation to have, but that's not the point. It's like if I wrote a love letter to my wife and said, I love you to the moon and back. And she goes, you've never been to the moon. That's not the point of that love letter, right? In the same way, it's like, oh, six days or, you know, a hundred years, whatever it was. It was an eom. It was a what, you know, whatever. That's the Hebrew word. That's not the point. The point is that God was king. And he created a kingdom. So what I want to talk to you a little bit about, starting in Genesis chapter 1, is what God was doing when he created his kingdom and what type of kingdom he created. Now, if you're jotting down notes, let's jot it down. God created a kingdom of order and not chaos. Okay, In the Old Testament mindset, the Hebrew mindset, the deep or the sea was a place of chaos. So when it says the spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep, it was chaos. When the disciples are out on the sea and they panic and Jesus is sleeping, they're in, they're in the deepest panic mode because in the Hebrew mindset, that was a place of chaos. And what God did was he came in and he said, light and dark are divided. Do you see the order that he creates? They're seasons. The sun rises and the sun sets. What I do is place order where there once was chaos. That's the kingdom of God. The second thing that happens in that kingdom is that God creates a kingdom of peace. Right? A kingdom of peace. If you read Genesis chapter 1, there's this kind of phrase that it keeps coming back to. And God said that it was what? Good. Right. It was good. It was good. It was good. It's like the hook in a Katy Perry song that gets stuck in your head. You know what I mean? Like if Genesis 1 is a song, which it is, that's the chorus that it keeps coming back to. God says, I'm creating a kingdom, not just of peace, that is to say the absence of conflict, but God creates a kingdom of wholeness, of wholeness, of connectedness. Particularly when God creates man and woman, he creates them as whole integrated beings. Their spirituality, their emotional life, their physical life, their sexual life is all wrapped up and connected together. Order, not chaos, and peace, right? Third, God creates a kingdom of responsibility and not blame. God creates original man and original woman, and what is the first thing he does? Is he gives them a task. Fill the earth and subdue it. Name the animals. Tend the garden. Everybody familiar with the Genesis chapter 1 text? Hopefully. Okay. If you're not, this is what God does. He gives them a sense of responsibility. He gives them a sense of a task, a job. So here we have this kingdom of peace, of responsibility, of order, and of joy. If you're writing that down, or if you're writing down notes, God creates a kingdom of joy. There is no fear. That's what joy is. Joy is simply the absence of fear. There is no fear when God is in total control, when the sovereign is on the throne. And this is the kingdom that God creates. And then it takes original man and original woman. Two chapters. Two. Just two to knock God down off his throne 
and decide that they would be a better king than God would be. And listen to what happens. Uh, original man, original woman, eat of the fruit of the tree that they're not supposed to eat of. And the very first thing that they do is they hide. God shows up in the cool of the day to walk with man and walk with woman in relationship that he meant for them to be in. And he says to Adam, where are you? And he said, I knew I'd done something wrong. And I felt what? Afraid is what he says. For the very first time, rather than joy, fear shows up. You tracking with me? And because of that fear, he hides from God. God created a kingdom of responsibility, right? Where we have responsibility to give him a job. We take that responsibility upon ourselves. And God shows up to Adam and he goes, what happened, man? And Adam goes, it wasn't me. It was her that you gave to me. Remember? Then he looks at woman and he goes, what happened? And he go, she goes, it wasn't me. It was the serpent. So instead of responsibility now, what do we have? A kingdom of what? Blame. I don't take responsibility for myself. Uh, Adam's, Adam's uh, response to God is hilarious to me because God says, what happened? And not only does he say, it wasn't me, it was her. He says, it wasn't me, it was the woman that you made for me. By implication, whose fault is this really? Well, God, it's really your fault. Uh, you know, It's like my kids telling me, look, I didn't take the candy, but you put it in the jar. You know, so really, it's your fault that I'm eating the candy because you're the one who bought it at the store. That's, that's not how this works, right? So now, when, when, when original man and original woman knock God down off his throne, now, instead of joy, we have fear and hiding, don't we? Now, instead of responsibility, we have blame. Now, instead of order, we have chaos. All of a sudden, the, the snake is crawling on its belly and the crushing the heel of the serpent and biting on the heel and all that stuff that's poetic in nature at the end of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is God saying what you did when you kicked the sovereign off of his throne is now you introduce chaos into the world. You introduce chaos instead of peace and order. You introduce fear instead of joy, blame instead of responsibility. And now what we have is total and complete cosmic chaos. If you're a musician, maybe here's another illustration. Uh, it's like an orchestra conductor has written a beautiful piece and a wonderful piece, and that orchestra conductor recruits a first chair violinist. First chair violinist is the one that gives the note to everybody, keeps tempo, all that stuff, and everybody in the orchestra is following that first chair violinist. God is like the orchestra conductor who wrote the piece. Now he's given it to the first chair violinist. And all of a sudden, the first chair violinist goes, nah, I don't want to play your piece. I want to play the piece I wrote. And what happens? Chaos. Factions. War. Disharmony. Disunity. And that's what we get in the Old Testament. Real quickly, even just from a hermeneutic perspective and how you read the Old Testament, some of us are really, really tempted to read the Old Testament and look for examples to follow. You know what I mean? Like we look, we read the life of David, read the life of Noah, read the life of Moses, and we go, what, what, what is it that they're doing? What example can I follow? That's not the point of the Old Testament. You know what the point of the Old Testament is? It's a historical record that tells us what happens when God isn't on the throne. 
Then the life of David, God's on the throne for a little while, then he boots him off, then what happens? In the life of Moses, God's on the throne for a little while, everything's good, then he boots him off, then what happens? Noah, God's on the throne for a little while, then he boots him off, then what happens? Fear, chaos, blame. All the things that we talked about happened when God, or when man, usurps the throne from God. So then, instead of allowing the world to continue to live in all that fear, and all that chaos, and all that blame, and shame, and hiding, God sent his son into the world. And the very first thing that happens before Jesus even starts his public ministry is his cousin shows up. His cousin was like a wild-eyed, wild-haired prophet from Apache Junction. Like, it, he, was, he was out in the middle of nowhere. Like, who is this guy talking about? What is he doing? And what is the message that he preaches? Repent for the what? Kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, Jesus starts to talk about the kingdom himself at the beginning of his public ministry and then again in Matthew chapter 4. And he wants us to understand the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a sower that went out to sow the seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a, a pearl that's hidden in a field. It's a great treasure, and someone left all that he had to buy that field in order to acquire that treasure. He wants us to understand the kingdom, and what he's doing is Jesus shows up as king to inaugurate his kingdom, to restore all things back to joy, peace, responsibility, all the things that we've talked about in the kingdom of God. So what that means for us now is this, is that Jesus, and, and, and somebody, please don't stand up and say that's heresy when I say this, all right, ready? That his primary mission in ministry was not to die and rise again so that your disembodied consciousness, your soul, could go to a place called heaven when you die. That's not, that's not his primary goal in ministry. It's a subsidiary of his primary goal in ministry. His primary goal in ministry is that God is king. And he came to establish a kingdom. And that king gave his life to restore all things back to the original design. To joy and peace and order and all the things that we talked about. Are you tracking with me? This is what Jesus came to do. He came to undo all that had been done when original man and original woman knocked God off the throne. And he started it 2,000 years ago. And one day, he'll come back and finish it. So now, if Jesus' primary goal in ministry was to establish the kingdom of God, and one day he'll come back and finish that work, in the meantime... Are we living in a world that's marked by peace and joy and order and responsibility, or are we living in a world that's marked by fear and chaos and blame? You tell me. Tell me. Do you watch Fox News? Yeah. If, if you're confused, watch Fox News just for like 30 minutes. My brother has a, car, my brother has a cardiology test on Wednesday, and he runs ultra marathons. 
and they're going to put him on this treadmill and try to get his heart rate up to like 150, 160. It's going to be impossible. My brother's an ultra marathoner. He said, if you put on Fox News for 10 minutes, my heart rate will get to 160. It'll be great. That's how they're going to get me up to 160. That's the world that we live in until Jesus comes back. So now, what does that mean for you and for me? What that means is that your job and my job is to bring the kingdom. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 says all this is from Christ, or all this is from God, who in Christ reconciled the world to himself. Now he's entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. And he says it twice, just so we get it, just so we wrap our head around it. He says it twice. He's entrusted to you the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I don't know uh, many of you. I know a couple of you. I know Troy pretty well. I know Aim real well, and I know myself the best. This is a dumb thing that God has done, isn't it? To entrust to you the ministry of reconciliation. You know you. You're not great. Neither am I. But in God's kingdom, the king gives his life as a ransom for many to rescue and redeem broken and lost people. And not just that, the orchestra conductor doesn't just forgive the first chair violinist, but he says to the first chair violinist, would you sit back down and participate with me in playing this beautiful piece once again? Would you sit back down and be a kingdom bringer? So when, now, now when we're looking at the New Testament, when it talks about Christian conduct, this, you don't obey the New Testament because God said so and you're obligated to do it. You obey the New Testament because you're a kingdom bringer. And the New Testament delineates how it is that we bring the kingdom in the world. Submit yourselves to one another for the Lord's sake. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Submit yourselves to the government and to the rulers uh, that God has put in place. Love one another. Bear with one another in love. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. These are not things that we pull up our bootstraps and we buckle down and we say, I'm going to do it because God said so, darn it. We do it because the king has come. And one day he's going to come back. And in the midst of it, when you smile at your barista, when he or she makes your coffee wrong, First of all, it's a darn coffee. Just relax, you know. But when you say, it's okay. I, 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 no big deal. You're all good. When you tip your server generously, when you train your clients, when you create unique and special things in your job, that's a kingdom of responsibility. That's the task that God has given you to do. Work, my friends, is not a curse. Work is something that God created before God, before man kicked him off the throne. And you don't work because you're obligated to work and to feed your family and all that stuff. You work because God has given that to you as an opportunity to bring the kingdom in the world, to be a bringer of peace and joy and order and responsibility in all the ways that God started his kingdom. I'll tell you one story about um, a way in which God allowed Aim and I to um, bring the kingdom in the world. In, um, and I don't tell this because I, I want to make it about me or about us. 
Um, I, I tell it because I want for you to get a vision of God as king and Jesus as king and, and your potential participation in that kingdom. Uh, we moved to Canada in 2013 in September and Kaya was born in August of 2014. Uh, we adopted Kaya. Um, we were supposed to be in the hospital when she was born. She came real early, and so we got there about 10 hours after she was born. Her birth parents um, asked us to uh, maintain an open relationship with them. So they have two full biological siblings. Kaya has two full uh, biological siblings older. Then uh, they had Kaya, and we adopted Kaya, took her home from the hospital, and maintain an open relationship. That is to say we exchange texts and talk and pictures and that kind of stuff with them if you don't know what that is. I wanna make one quick comment about adoption and then come back. Um, let's, let's be cautious how we talk about uh, moms who place their babies for adoption. Uh, that's the most courageous and sacrificial thing I've ever seen anyone do. And so when we talk about them, let's honor them in that way. So uh, Kai's birth mom and birth dad uh, placed her for adoption Again, one of the most courageous and sacrificial things I've ever seen anyone do. And about, uh, and we had maintained a great relationship with them. Uh, within the first couple weeks of Kaya being born, we were in Florida with them, and we took them into church for the first time. They walked the aisle, gave their lives to Christ uh, while we were there with them. I mean, just magical. I mean, just otherworldly type of stuff. So about a year later, I'm at the gym. It was back day. And uh, I get a text from my wife, and all it is is a picture of an ultrasound. And this is exactly how I responded. Whose womb is this? <laughs> uh, now, we've been married 17 years this month. We've never been pregnant that we know of, but we always want to just have biological kids. So it could have been possible that we were pregnant. We, you know, we never kind of did testing and all that stuff. We always just wanted adopted kids. So I said, whose womb is this? And, and Aim said, it's uh, Kaya's birth mom. And she's pregnant again, same birth dad. Uh, they've been together a long time, and they want us to adopt the baby. So we journeyed with them for eight months of that pregnancy. We paid for every birth mom expense, rent and car and all that stuff for, for eight months of that. And uh, we were there when the baby was born by C-section, scheduled C-section. Uh, baby had a couple of complications, so the baby was in the hospital for about five days. Uh, we did every diaper change, every bottle feeding. Uh, birth mom, birth dad didn't touch the baby for those four or five days. And about an hour before discharge, she changed her mind and decided to parent the baby. So uh, we've never had, we've never lost a child in death. Uh, we've never been pregnant that we know of. So I, I can't, if you've lost an infant or a child in death, I can't compare it to that. What I would say is that psychologists compare it to that, right? People who are counselors in grief specialty will compare uh, walking out of a hospital after having anticipated you're gonna bring a baby home without a baby and, and I collapsed on the floor of the hospital. Amy had to pick me up. I mean, it was just waves of grief. Uh, and we told them, listen, guys, uh, at the very least here, we're going to need a break from this relationship. Um, you know, at the very most, the, the relationship is now over. We don't blame you. Uh, we, we understand that you want to parent that baby, and anytime biological parents choose to parent their baby, that's a good thing. We're okay with that, but the grief that this has caused us and the hurt is just uh, too much for words. We all tracking here? And I think God chuckled just a little bit when I said that. 
you think you know. So he did what he does when you allow him to be king. He healed. I know you guys talk about that as Jesus' healer, right? Doctor. He healed. And he began to heal that relationship. And nine months later, they finally decided to get married. Guess who officiated? And who was the maid of honor? And who was the flower girl? Her biological parents' wedding. That little girl back there. We had another adoption fail after the fact. A, a gal uh, that we tracked with for about eight months uh, made the decision at the very last minute and kind of disappeared from the hospital and, and we never <coughs> saw her again. And then uh, about a year later, uh, in 2018, little Canaan was born. Um, Kai's biological parents are doing great now. They are fantastic <coughs> human beings. They're both working, they're volunteering in their churches and in their church. Their smart kids get straight A's. They're not so smart kids don't get straight A's. <laughs> but they are, if they were here, you would love them so much. They are extraordinary human beings. And now they're bringing the kingdom where they're at. By loving their kids well and by working and doing all of those things. Listen, please, I beg of you, if you see the New Testament, and the commands of the scripture as a list of obligations and minimum expectations to live up to so that God will accept you. <clears throat> Please shoot that notion in the head and give it a proper burial today. That's not what the New Testament is there for. The king is pleased with you. So pleased, in fact, that he was willing to sacrifice himself in order to redeem you and now invites you in to be a bringer of the kingdom in the world. So tomorrow morning, when you go back to work, when you're parenting your kids, when you're interacting with your spouse, please, it's not a list of obligations. It's instructions as to how we are charged now to be ministers of reconciliation and torchbearers for the kingdom in the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have done two things that come to my mind right now, and uh, your blessings are just thousands upon thousands. But, um, two things that come to mind right this second. One is you have chosen not to give us what we deserve. That's your mercy. Really what we deserve is for the Bible to end in Genesis chapter 3 and for you to kind of eradicate the whole thing and maybe start again and maybe not. That's what we deserve. <coughs> and yet you have withheld justice, what we earned. And we are so grateful. But God, on top of that, you have extended grace that is to say, not just withheld justice, but poured out blessing. Given us immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Given us even one another in this place this morning and the cool breeze coming through and invited us to now participate with you in restoring life and light and wholeness and peace.
peace and responsibility and all those things that we know our world lacks. Thank you, gracious God, for that invitation. We are so grateful. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us. Real Life Arizona is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. For more information about Real Life, please visit our website at reallifearizona.com or email us at info at reallifearizona.com. May God richly bless you.